This morning we're going to go back to 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 now. 1 Peter chapter 3. As you're turning, let me give you this heads up. The first Sunday in December, uh, we are going to have what we call our question and answer Sunday. We did this last year. Um, and so that gives you an opportunity if there's things in the Bible that you don't understand or you have question about certain passages or certain things from Scripture, uh, if you'll write them down, you can start turning them in now. And then on that Sunday, the first Sunday in December, I'll try to answer those for you from God's Word so we can have those answers uh, appropriately and answered according to God's truth and not just by some speculation or guess. So that'll be the first Sunday in December. But today we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we've been talking about the suffering that Christians will go through, and Peter has a lot more to say about that. But the idea that Peter wants to emphasize is that even though we suffer, we are still to be in submission. Submission is a hallmark of the Christian life. If we are truly new creatures, then submission will be manifest in our lives in many ways. And so we're continuing to read in that light this morning as we see a third example of where we are supposed to show submission. The first two were the government and then our workplace authorities. And here in chapter 3, we see submission within marriage between a husband and wife. So let's read chapter 3. We're going to read the first six verses I'm sorry, um, I should get in 1 Peter instead of 2 Peter, that would be better. Um, first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. The Bible says this, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning... Let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair and wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. We'll stop there. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at our message together. Father, we just ask for your presence now. We ask for your guidance as we look into your word. We know that you have given it to us for the purpose of teaching and correction for instruction in righteousness, Lord, and so use it for that purpose today. May our minds and hearts be open to receive what your Spirit wants to present to us and help us to learn and remember and to live by it. Lord, I am a weak and foolish person, and I need your help now, and so give me your Spirit in a full measure. I pray that you would just empower me to speak your truth. Give me wisdom so that we might hear from you today, Lord. Just use me as your tool We submit ourselves to you now. Do your work in us and accomplish your work in this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been talking about, this theme of submission is all throughout uh, the book of 1 Peter, especially as we get into chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
And in each case that we looked at, first with our submission to the government, and then last week our submission to our workplace authorities, um, our submission is not based on the character of those authorities over us, whether they're corrupt or not. Those are authorities that God has ordained over us for his purpose, and therefore it is our job to submit to them. And so we're commanded to submit and obey to government authorities, to workplace authorities, to anyone God has set over us, so that in submission we might show who our true master is. It's not the masters of earth that are our true and ultimate master. It is God who is in heaven. And as we submit even to our authorities on earth, we submit as servants to God, Peter said earlier in, this, in chapter 2. And so as we look at chapter 3, the theme hasn't changed. He's still on this idea of submission to authority. And in this case, the third example he gives us is within the realm of marriage, and he begins by saying, wives, be subject to your husbands, or wives, be in submission to your husbands. Now, we can't forget everything that we've learned about submission to authority in government or workplace as we enter into this um, a command of wives being in submission to their husbands, because everything that Peter said applies here as well. Submission doesn't change depending on the scenario, and as we've seen, it doesn't change depending on the character of the authority. So all of the, the principles that we've seen in the previous two apply in this area as well of wives submitting to their husbands. Now, this passage, especially and others like it in Scripture, does not sit well with the culture of our, our modern society because we have an emphasis on equality and equity, and unfortunately those focuses have obscured much of the teaching of the Bible and the principles that are set forth for the marriage relationship there. Submission is not a topic that any potential bride wants to hear about today, for the most part. It's not something, in fact, that many seasoned wives want to hear about. And it may be because of who they're married to. I, I don't know the circumstances, but a lot of it has come from our culture and just the teaching of our culture, which has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and therefore kind of pushed their own agenda. Um, it may be people are in difficult marriages, and so something like this uh, from God's Word is difficult to stomach or difficult to actually practice. And I know many difficult marriages didn't start out that way. Many optimistic and naive brides go into marriage thinking that they're going to marry the best version of the person that they're engaged to, when in fact it turns out that they have married the worst version of the person that they were engaged to. And they don't realize that until after the I do's are all finished. But Peter here, as in the other two scenarios, does not qualify this submission on the character of the husband. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, just the same way that he says, obey your authorities in government and submit yourselves to your workplace authorities. Master or servants, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, thankfully... For all of the women here today, and I'm sure you're going to be glad about this, Peter doesn't confine his command just to women. By the time you get to verse 7, now he's talking to husbands. So he addresses both, not just the wives. So, you know, women 
don't worry about it. We'll get to the husbands. We're not just going to pick on you this morning. Um, but I think Peter addressed this, and I, I, um, I think looking back at history, we have an understanding of why this became so important. Because in Peter's day, a wife was not regarded, in fact, women were not regarded with respect within the culture and the society. In fact, a wife was looked at as property of the husband. They could tell them to do anything they wanted them to do, and they had to do it. They could divorce them for any reason at all, and yet the wife did not have really any ground to stand on to, to, come, to uh, make accusations against her husband. And so the standing of the wife in biblical times was a lot different than what we even have in our culture today, where they literally were almost looked at as slaves. And so if we go back to chapter 2 where it says, servants obey your masters, that's the way a husband would look at his wife in these days. And so Peter is addressing this because in the church we have these women who are treated like slaves now coming to Christ and now learning about the gospel and the love of Jesus and the freedom we have in Christ and all of a sudden, they have this opinion that, well, I shouldn't be treated like a slave by my husband because we're equal in God's sight. And so many of them started to rebel against their husbands in disobedience and in disrespect because of their salvation. And so Peter gives this command in that context, not giving a new command, but reminding people of God's principle that was from the very beginning. Wives, be in submission to your husbands. And it doesn't matter what your husbands are like. That is the context of marriage and the model that God has set. And so today we look at this command for wives to submit to their husbands as, as it's addressed to wives. We'll look at what the command is for the husbands next time. But Peter starts with this command very plainly, as he has the other two. And he says, wives, be in submission to your husbands. Now, I left out the first word as I've been saying this because I want to focus on this first word of the verse. He says, likewise, wives, be in submission to your husbands. Likewise means in like manner. And we have to look at that and go, okay, in what manner? What manner is Peter talking about? And he's referring back to chapter 2 when he says, be subject to your government. Ma uh, servants, be subject to your masters. And then he says here, likewise, ye wives, be subject to your husbands. So there's a lot of similarities. There's the same principle and literally the same practice that Peter is enjoining us to here. And so we have to look back and remind ourselves what were the principles in subjection and submission to government and subjection and submission to our earthly workplace authorities that now apply here to wives and their husbands? And let me give you three. First of all, we know that the husband is an earthly authority established by God. Again, this is not something new in marriage that uh, Peter is, is uh, enjoining here. This is something that God said about at the very beginning. But just as government is our authority on this earth, just as our, work, our employers are our workplace authorities in the place that we work, now Peter says, wives, your husbands are your authorities in this same way. And so we must submit to those husbands in the same way. 
So the husband is the earthly authority of the wife that God has established over the wife here on earth. Now, right away, we have a cultural conflict that arises when you make that statement, okay? Because our culture uh, has a different idea. The idea that the husband has authority over the wife, the world would call that patriarchal oppression. The husband shouldn't be leading. We are equals, Our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence says that, right? We are all equals. We are created by God as equals. So the husband should not be in an elevated position of authority in a marriage. And that's what our society and our culture teaches. In fact, they've targeted and attacked what they'll call patriarchal oppression um, from the foundation of modern-day feminism and Basically, they want to seek to minimize or eliminate any form of male leadership roles, especially within the family structure. And yet, what we see all through Scripture is not what the culture preaches. The culture claims that this authority structure that we see in the Bible is outdated. It was in a culture that did not see people as equals, did not uh, equate men and women, on the same level, and they didn't, that's, for, that's true, but the principle of Scripture still applies here. The authority structure that God ordained in marriage starts right at the beginning. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, he created them male and female. He brought them together, but in chapter 2, it, it gives us more details about the creation of man and woman, and it says he created Adam first. And then he saw that Adam, it was not good for Adam to be alone, and so he created woman, Eve, to be a help to him, a help meet or or suitable for him. Now, the wife then was taken or created out of the rib of Adam, taken from his side. So in that regard, there's symbolism that she is to come alongside, not behind, not below, but alongside. So in that way, as far as God is concerned, they are equals. But the statement that God made that she was a help to him indicates that there's an assistance, a a step down as far as the leadership role, assisting the leader. And God emphasizes emphasizes this after they sin. And when he comes to them in Genesis chapter 3, he's talking directly to Eve in verse 16. And he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. In other words, you're going to fight him in this authority thing, but he shall rule over you. Now, that was God just restating a purpose. Now, there is a conflict that arose because of sin. And the conflict was that now no one wants to accept the leadership roles and the structure that God has ordained. And so the wife in rebellion will try to overthrow that. And all through Scripture, this authority structure in marriage is consistently demonstrated and taught. No matter where you go, you eventually get to Ephesians chapter 5. And and Paul has this same command in Ephesians 5 where he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, as you submit to the Lord, you are to submit to your husband. So nothing changes from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the New Testament and to our modern day. And so Peter is giving that same message here. So as far as the church is concerned, there's really not an alternative for us to say, well, you know, this really doesn't apply anymore because culture has changed. In fact, that's the argument. That's outdated. The culture is different. But God's 
word has not changed. God's principles haven't changed. God's truth hasn't changed. Nothing from God has changed. What has changed? The culture. And so people will say, well, we need to adapt our practice of Scripture to meet with the culture. Well, let me describe to you how the culture has changed. The culture has become more ungodly, has moved farther away from God and his standards. And so do we really want to go in that direction? We don't adapt to the culture by moving away from what Scripture teaches us. We stick with what God tells us. And so this principle of authority within the marriage is still applicable today in our modern culture, whether they accept it or not, because that is God's rule. And so we cannot and we must not follow in the path of the culture, but continue to use God's word as the model and authority for our life choices, including here in marriage. Now, with this submission, I'm not saying that the wife is then a slave to her husband. When we, and we're not going to go into all the context of marriage today, but marriage is about two people committing their lives to serve one another. And so both, in a sense, as we saw back in chapter 2, are servants to God to serve the person that God has put them with. So the, the husband then doesn't have the authority to command his wife to tell her to do this and that, regardless of how it affects her. He is to approach her in love, and we'll see that in verse 7. Okay, so it's not about a servant-master relationship. It's about the authority roles that God has given husbands and wives within the relationship of marriage. And Peter outlines that here just like Paul does and God did in Genesis 3 when he says, wives, you are to be in submission to the authority of your husbands in this relationship. The husband is the leader. You will be the, the follower. You are the help come alongside. So number one that we have to understand is that the husband is the authority, the God-ordained authority within that relationship of marriage. And then the wife must submit to him, as Peter says, in the same way that we are to submit to the government and to our workplace authorities. Number two, let me, let me add one more part to that. In that submission, we have the aspect of obedience as well. Now, I, I've talked with people, I've done a lot of marriage counseling, I've done many weddings, and then the discussion always comes down, well, in the vow, should we say that the wife promises to obey her husband or just to honor him? Well, as we saw with government, we are to obey our government. That's commanded. As we saw with our workplace authorities, we are to obey our authorities in that regard, and so obey is inherent within this command for a wife to obey her husband as well. We can't argue with that because Peter says likewise, all right? And in fact, um, the principle still stands that obedience is part of this submission, and so therefore she must listen to her husband, not as a master telling a servant what to do, but he has the authority from God to make the final decisions, and that's just the structure that God has set up. And in fact, if you go to verse 6, which we read, the end of this, this section, here's the example. He says, here's Sarah, and how does he describe her submission to her husband? He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. So obedience is part of his submission as well. So that's the first point, that the husband is that authority. Number two, it doesn't matter what kind of husband he, he is. It doesn't depend on his character or whether he's a Christian in fact, the example Peter gives here is one who is an unbeliever. So we assume that he's talking to saved wives, 
who are married to unsaved and ungodly husbands. And he uses this phrase to describe those husbands as one who is disobedient to the word. Now, the Greek word for that phrase is apatheo. It's the word we get apathy from. We know that kind of means I have no interest in knowing that, in practicing that. It just it doesn't appeal to me at all. And that's the kind of person, the kind of husband that Peter's talking about, someone who is ap- ac- uh, absolutely apathetic toward God. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to know anything about God. He doesn't... Um, He's not interested in living by God's word or knowing God's principles. And so that is the kind of husband Peter describes. So again, then we have to assume that Peter's not qualifying obedience and submission based on the quality of those husbands who are over the wives. It's an unsafe person, an ungodly person, and yet the principle of submission still holds true here. And so even with These kinds of ungodly husbands, wives are still to be subject to them. Third, and this is important that I want you to understand, because this is a qualifier. Peter says, and you look at very closely at the words, he says, you wives be in subjection to your own husband. Your own husband. When Peter gave us this principle of being in subjection to our government, He wasn't saying you have to obey the laws of every government in the world. He was saying the government that's over you, the authority that's over you, you need to be subject to them. The workplace, employer, your employer, you need to be in subjection to them. Not to every employer in the world, but to the one who is over you. And in the same way, Peter now says, wives, you are subject to your own husbands. Now, this idea of wives being in submission has been extrapolated wrongly in many Christian circles, and I'll call them cults, because it's a wrong practice of this principle where they will take this command for wives to be in subjection to your husbands and then apply it broadly, saying all women are to be in subjection to all men in this way. And that is wrong. That is the wrong application and wrong interpretation of this principle. Peter specifically says, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 5, wives, you are to be in subjection to your own husbands. That means you are not responsible to submit yourselves to other people's husbands. You do not have to obey what other husbands tell you. And in fact, you don't have to obey what other men tell you. And there are many wrong ideas that come out of this command where men just assume, well, I have the authority over all women because of this principle. No man has the authority over a wife except her husband. And that would include your pastor. Now, as a pastor and elder of the church, I'm I'm given certain spiritual authority by God to teach, to guide, to advise, to exhort. But that does not give me power and authority to command women what to do. It doesn't give any man the authority except your husband. And so this command applies only within the bounds of your own marriage. And that's important to remember, okay? Because um, if it's taken out of context, it can result in some serious, serious uh, wrong practices Uh, and wrong interpretations of how this is supposed to be carried out. So this is not a general command, women, that you have to obey all men 
because you are inferior to them in some way. That is absolutely wrong thinking. You are to obey and submit to your husband, your husbands alone. Anyone who would try to teach this differently and broaden this out, I would qualify as a false teacher, okay, because they're going way beyond what Scripture gives us. So that's the command that God gives to wives to the Apostle Peter. Submit to your own husbands, very much like the previous two that we saw regarding authority in government and authority in our workplace. Now, what's the purpose for the command then? At the end of verse 1, Peter gives us the reason for this wifely submission, and he says, so that your unsaved husband may be brought to God or won over to Jesus Christ. There's your purpose. Now, what greater purpose in life could you have as a saved person than to bring someone else to Jesus Christ? That's our calling, okay? That is the most uh, important thing that we are here for. So God can work through us to build his kingdom. In other words, so God can work through us to bring people to Christ. And Peter uses that same principle here. The reason a wife is to submit to an ungodly husband, even an ungodly husband, is so that her testimony before him will win him over to the truth of the gospel, that it can change lives. Remember Peter said why we were to obey government? Back in verse 15 in chapter 2, he says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, they have nothing to accuse you of wrongly. Same principle. Women submit to your husbands so that they can't accuse you of any kind of wrongdoing. If you operate or live in this kind of submission and obedience, what can they accuse you of? They can falsely accuse you, but... If you're living according to what God tells you to live, if you truly are living as a child of God, walking in the steps of Jesus, now they can't accuse you. What's the biggest accusation against Christians as a whole? Bunch of hypocrites, right? You're a bunch of hypocrites. You have this Bible, you know what God says, and you don't do it. Well, you have this Bible, wives, you know what it says. Peter says, do it. And that's a, a way, uh, through your testimony, that you can bring your husband to Christ. Interestingly, he uses this phrase in the middle of that. Look at, look at verse 1. The second part, if any obey not the word, this is the husband, that they also may be without word, be won by the conversation of the wives. That means without words from the wife. It's not talking about without the word of God. You can't be saved without the word of God. Peter's saying, without you speaking, by your life, your husband will see that you really believe what you say you believe, and that will influence him to be open to receiving the truth of God, without your words. The old saying is, your actions speak louder than words, right? Here it is. Wives, without your words... You can bring your husbands to Christ through your submission. That's, that's Peter's command. That's the reason that you are to submit. And so it's a quiet, patient endurance, a quiet, patient submission in a lifestyle, in the relationship between a husband and wife, that a saved wife, a believing wife, can help bring her husband to Jesus Christ without a word from her. 
when other people see that we hold Jesus Christ as the master of our lives, then they have nothing to validly accuse us of. It's the same in a marriage relationship. As we see at the very end of chapter 2, Peter says we are to walk in Jesus' steps, walk as he walked. And Peter now applies that in the relationship of a husband and wife, a saved wife who's with an ungodly husband. Wives walk like Jesus walked. Walk in his steps, even as he suffered. Follow Jesus' steps. And he says, what is, basically, what does that testimony look like? He expands on that in verses 2 and 3. He says, while talking about the husbands, while they behold or see your chaste conversation, coupled with fear. So that's what your lifestyle should look like as you submit to Jesus and, and your husband. You are to walk in chasteness and fear or purity and respect. Now again, we are not to fear our governments. We are not to fear our employers. We are not to fear your husband's wives. You are to fear who? God. So walk in purity before God. Walk in purity before your husband. Walk in fear before God. Live in respect before your husband. That's what Peter's saying here. That's the kind of lifestyle that exhibits this kind of submission. And he says, in this way, they will, be, they will see your chaste or pure conversation. Now, chaste means pure. It doesn't just mean being faithful sexually to your husband in that way, but it includes a faithfulness to God as you keep yourself from sinning. Obviously, not living in sin in any way, but obeying God's commands as you say you believe. And then the word again, fear, is the word phobos, and it refers to a fear of God. And so, because you fear God, you respect your husbands. You live in purity before your husbands. You don't use your words to influence your husbands. And then Peter gives more detail in in verses 3 and 4, and he explains. Here's more about what this looks like. In verse 3, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of planting of the hair, of wearing of gold, of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. Now he says, not your adorning. Your outward is not the way you do this. Now Peter addresses this because in, again, Bible times, especially in the time that Peter was talking about here, Wives, especially from more upper-class families, were, were motivated to be the center of attention of everything and everywhere they went. Okay? This was the regular practice. And even if you were lower class, you tried to dress up the facade to impress people and make them think that you were above your pay grade or something higher than what you really were. And the way they did that was plating of the hair, gold jewelry, and putting on expensive dresses. And so the women, literally in this day, would put on extremely heavy makeup, wear expensive and glittering jewelry, so it sparkled, and the light would sparkle all around them. And their hair was done up in extravagant, and I'm going to mess this word up, quiffé, I think that's how you say the French word. You know, the big beehive hairdos, okay? And you've seen them, right? You know what we're talking about here because it's not just in Peter's day. It happens today. 
Okay, I don't advise you watching any of the Hollywood award shows, but if you do, there it is. Okay? And this is what was happening, not just in the women in the culture, but this is what the women in the church were doing. They were putting on this appearance outwardly that Peter says, you missed the point. Okay, your, your husband might enjoy when you dress up like that and might enjoy looking at you dressed like that. He said, but that's not going to win your husband. What's going to win your husband is not the outward, but the inward. It's what's in you that matters. I'm going to share this story with you. When we were in Michigan years and years ago, my family all, my extended family all went to church together. And every once in a while, we would go out to lunch to this certain restaurant. And it was almost guaranteed that when we showed up at this restaurant, it was another church close by that let out. And the women competed, I think, who could have the most outlandish and extravagant outfit because they would come marching in. I mean, it seemed like a whole congregation. And they would come marching in. And the dresses would be bright colors that caught your eye and just, you know, fashioned in a way that it was just unusual and extravagant. And then the jewelry all over the place, just jewels and sparkles and gold and diamonds and all the rest of it. And then on top of that, every single one of them would wear a hat. And I'm not talking a top hat. I'm talking a hat like you can't imagine, okay? I never saw hats like I saw in those women. And on those hats, they had stuff from ostrich feathers to rabbit's feet to stuff that shouldn't be on hats to express their, I don't know what they were trying to express, okay? But you can imagine the result. Every single person in the restaurant was looking at them. And that was the problem. And that's what Peter says here. Your testimony is not about what you can do on the outside to make people look at you. In fact, if you become the center of attention in your appearance, that's a problem, especially in the church of God. And there's a whole sermon there that I don't have time to go into. Okay? But Peter says it's not about the outside. And if the result of what you do on the outside is that everybody is now looking at you, you've just defeated the whole purpose for which God has called you to. Not just in the church, but before your husband. What does he say should be on display? He says what people should see, and especially your husband should see, is the hidden man of the heart. Now, Peter uses the, man, the word man generically, okay, it just refers to all people in general. So he's talking, saying all of us have this inner part that's the most important. Women, that's what you are to focus on. And he says it's the hidden man of the heart, the hidden part. It's not what people see. It's what's hidden inside. People don't see it unless that attitude pervades you and then your actions show it. But they can't see that quality in you specifically, but there's one who can, because nothing is hidden from God. So even though it's hidden from man, that inner part of you is not hidden from God. And whatever we do, we are not to do for other people, to please other people. We are do, to do as to the Lord, to please him. 
And there's that fear of God. And so what you present to others, especially your husband, is not the outward decoration, and it's not just the physical decoration of dresses and hair and jewelry and makeup. It is the decoration that Peter uses, or he uses this phrase, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. That's what God has called all Christians to be decorated with, a meek and quiet spirit. And so he says specifically, wives, in regard to your husbands, forget about the outward decorations. Stop focusing so much there, even about the outward actions. Focus on the inner part of you. The, that me, is the meek and quiet spirit there, because if that's where it's supposed to be, if that's what it's supposed to be, then the rest will take care of itself. David Guzik asked this question, what do you depend on to make yourself beautiful? The spirit of a person can't be seen by men, but it can be seen by God. So are you more concerned about your presentation to those who can see you, or are you more concerned about your presentation to the one who sees what others can't see? In verse 4, he uses this phrase to describe that inner man. He says, that which is not corruptible. Now, I don't want to insult anybody, but if you don't understand what Peter's talking about there, go home and look in the mirror, okay? Physical beauty does not last forever, as much as you want to trick yourself into thinking so, okay? Uh, as we get older, and I'm going to put this as kindly as I can, we get uglier, okay? All of us, that's just the, the nature of degeneration, okay? It's the rule of the universe, the curse of sin. Now, the question is not whether our outside is not as beautiful as what it should be, but the question is, is our inside as beautiful to God as it should be? We can dress ourselves up, we can cover ourselves, we can do the makeup, we can do the jewelry, all the rest of it. To God, that none of that matters. In fact, he cursed Israel. Um, in the Old Testament, the Israelites are trying to do that, trying to dress themselves up and cover their sinfulness, and God says, no, I'm going to make your perfume stink. I'm going to make your makeup rot. Your dresses are going to fall apart. You're going to be wearing sackcloth. He said, because I don't care about all that. What I care about is the heart. And so Peter says, focus on that which is not corruptible, that which is not going to fade away, which is not going to degenerate, and that quiet and meek spirit of the heart that is a fruit of the spirit of God is not something that is going to fade the older we get. Actually, that will grow stronger the older we get if we're walking with the Lord. And so that's what he's focused on here. Now, it does not mean that we should neglect completely our outward appearance because if you don't care at all about how you look, you don't take a shower, you get up, and whatever you are when you get out of bed, okay, that's what the world gets. Okay, whatever you smell like, that's what the world gets. Well, let me tell you, if that's the attitude you take, then people will be looking at you as well for a different reason. And that's the wrong approach, too. In fact, there was a question, uh, a big question back in fundamental Christian circles when I was growing up. And the big question was, should women, should Christian women wear makeup at all or jewelry? And people went back and forth. People took sides on this. And Dr. Bob Jones Sr. from Bob Jones University, he was a, a, a known evangelist and theologian, and his answer was this, if the barn needs painting, paint it. 
okay? That, that's just a matter of fact. It was a great answer, I think. Okay, but don't use all the paint. <laughs> so you get the idea. So it's not about neglecting the outward, but Peter says what's more important is what's inside. That's what's going to win your husband. So Peter's attitude, or Peter's point here is that our, your attitudes, your spirit, are more important than the outward appearance and the outward performance, if you want to call it that. I'm not saying outward conduct. I'm saying outward performance. Because if the inside is right, the outside will be too. But you can't force that. And so he says, you have this ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. And then he says this, which is to God of great price. See, that's what is valuable to God. Not the jewelry, not the expensive dresses, not the makeup, not the hair. What is of value to God is the meek and quiet spirit. And so who are you trying to please? Are you trying to please yourself when you look in the mirror and you like what you see? Are you trying to please your husband? When he looks at you, he likes what he sees outwardly. Are you trying to please other people? Or are you really concerned about having God look at the inward part of you and seeing that ornament of a meek and quiet spirit? Because that's what's valuable to God. And so as we apply, apply this to the scenario at hand, this idea of submission, Peter's not saying, don't dress up, don't fix yourself up. He's saying, don't focus on that. He says, your area of faithfulness to God should be of a meek and quiet spirit because that's what God values. In verses 5 and 6, very quickly, he gives the example of this command. He's, and, he, and he says, this is nothing new. He says, all the holy women that trusted God did this. This was a, a regular practice of all those godly women through the ages. In other words, look at the two words he chooses. It is a characteristic of holy women, and it's a characteristic of those who trusted God. Now, as Christians, we hopefully would want both of those words to define us. But he says, if that's what you want to define you, then this is what your life will be. Your inside will be more important than the outside. That's what holy women did. That's how they lived. That's how they trusted God. And it's not just the inside, but he says they did it in submission to their husbands. And by default, then, if you're more concerned with your outward appearance than your inward, then you're not living in holiness and you're not trusting God. Your goal should not be to impress people or your husband. You're, as wives, we shouldn't, you shouldn't be so focused on impressing your husband. The goal should be being faithful to God and then letting that character that he builds in you bring not just to your husband, but other people, to the Lord. And so the wife's submission to her husband here is an evidence of the Spirit of God being the one in control in your life. Not only guiding you how, how to live, but empowering you to live the right way. You can't do it yourself. So it all starts with a surrender to the Lord, as we saw before, a servant of God. And then he gives the example of Sarah. He says, when you read the account of Sarah, here's a great example of a wife who submits to her husband. And he uses the word obey. Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, when you go back, and I'm not going to take the time to do it, but if you read the story of Sarah, remember, there were a couple times when Abraham, as the husband, 
got into a situation where because he was married to Sarah, he, his own life may have been in danger. And so twice, on two different occasions, he told her to lie. Now, she technically was his half-sister. But he said, don't tell him you're my wife. Just tell him you're my sister. Because if they find out you're my wife, they're going to kill me so they can have you. She was beautiful. Okay? And she obeyed. The Bible never condemns Sarah for obeying her husband and lying. Never. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, Sarah is listed as one of the great heroes of the faith. In that she submitted to her husband and trusted God. And here, Peter uses her as an example of submission and obedience to her husband. Even as we know that he asked her to lie twice. And, you know, there may have been other situations. Now, how would you respond if you were put in that situation by your husband? I'm not saying you should lie. Okay, we know lying's wrong. I'm saying we look at the example of Sarah and her submission to her husband even to that degree. Okay, there is the principle that we have to interpose here that if our husbands ask us to do something that is against God's commands, then we must obey God rather than man. Okay, that principle applies here too. But Sarah is held up as the example. Remember, Sarah, in her 80s, God came and said, you're going to have a son in her 80s. She laughed at first, but then she submitted herself to that. That's why she's in the Hall of Faith. She had Isaac when she was 90. Now, I don't think, I think Dave is a little over 90, but none of us have gotten there yet. Think of starting to raise a child at 90. Okay? I know there's young parents here who are like, oh, I can hardly handle it now. Think of trying to do that at 90. Now, that's starting at 90. That means when Isaac became a teenager, she was 103. Would you be willing to do that? See, that's the kind of submission that Sarah had. Okay, I I probably wouldn't. I mean, if God came to me and said, I'm going to give you a new child tomorrow, I'd be like, I'm 57. I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning. You know, I can't remember where I put my keys or my wallet half the time. I'm afraid I would lose this kid. And then thinking about diapers and spitting up and long nights of crying, I have trouble sleeping anyway. God, why are you doing this to me? She didn't question that. And so that's the example that Peter gives of a wife submitting to her husband. Is it unreasonable what your husband may ask you to do? Possibly. Do you submit to it anyway? Yep. And he says at the end of that, that, if you do that, when you live in faith that way, that you won't be afraid of anything. And he uses the word extreme circumstances. At the end of verse 6, he says, you won't be afraid with any amazement. In other words, you won't be surprised by anything. You won't be afraid no matter what happens. Why? Because you're trusting God. Because you're obeying God. And God has a purpose in it. And you will not fear not only what your husband will ask you to do, but you will not fear what he does to you. And we have to include this here because 
if we look at the examples back for government and for servants obey your masters, both of those are in the context of persecution and suffering. And so as we finish this, we have to ask the question, so is this then include an abusive situation? And as a pastor looking at God's word, I couldn't go to a wife who is being abused even and say, you have to leave your husband because of this passage right here, because of the, pre- pre- of the principle that is taught all throughout Scripture and the fact if Peter had just said wives here and didn't give us the example of government and then earthly authority, and in earthly authority he says, when you are buffeted, beaten for doing right, stand there and take it patiently. Likewise, wives submit to your husbands. Now, that's hard. That, I mean, in our culture especially, that is extremely hard. But remember the culture that Peter's talking about. Okay? It was a lot worse than what we see today. And yet he's still giving this. And so in light of the other two scenarios, even with the possibility of physical abuse and persecution, the command doesn't change. Now, I'm open to somebody coming and saying, you know, from Scripture, here's why I think you're wrong on that. And I've had this discussion with many people, but I can't find in Scripture anything that contradicts this principle. I'll give you one caveat. If there's children involved, now it's the protection of others. When government persecutes, it's not about me. It's protecting others. When the workplace authorities abuse others, then we intervene. And so if there's children, then intervention has to take place, yeah, out of the home out of that danger, but for self, there's nothing in Scripture ever that says protect yourself. Nowhere. As you read Second, First uh, Peter chapter 2 and 3 here, th- these are some of the most difficult scenarios, really practically, that we are given in which we have to obey authority in extreme circumstances. And remember again the example that Peter is pointing to when he says you have to submit, you have to suffer quietly, you have to endure, and then he says, look at Jesus Christ. Did no wrong, was mocked, abused, beaten, his beard pulled out, he was spit upon, and then he was crucified. There's our model of how to obey this command. And that's tough, but that's the model that, Jesus, that uh, Peter picks out under the inspiration of, G- of the Holy Spirit here. And so to say, well, it doesn't fit with our culture, to say, well, we need to interpret this a different way because, you know, protection of life is important. I'm, I'm telling you what Scripture says. And so obeying God, even when it doesn't make sense, is what faith is all about. And that is the one, uh, the mark of one who is submitted to his authority and his sovereignty in their lives. Does God ever allow anything bad to happen to those who trust him and who love him? The Bible says, no, all things work together for good, even those extreme circumstances. 
And so as we read this passage, and ones like what we read today, the ultimate question is this. Am I going to completely and implicitly trust God for what he said and obey him in submission to God as my master and then just let him work out the rest of it? Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path, Proverbs tells us. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we going to question whether God knows what's right, whether he knows what's happening, whether he he can't figure out this situation, it's gotten beyond his control, or are we going to trust him and obey what he says here? Israel tried to figure it out on their own. It didn't work out good for them. They, They got messed up, okay? And they were in a whole heap of trouble in the long run. And many people have done that and tried to figure out, apart from God's truth, how to do it because what makes sense to me? And yet, true faith is taking the word of God as it is given to us and obeying it as it is given to us. And so the test of our faith is whether we're going to just submit to God as his people and then in course learn to submit to his commands to us and his truth to submit to our earthly ordained authorities by God, whatever they may be, no matter the consequences. And that's what Peter gives us in chapter 2 and 3 here. Now, as we move on from this, I mean, obviously there's a command to the husbands. We'll talk about that next week. But as we get into the second part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, the whole context is how are you going to respond in suffering? Physical brutality that leads to suffering. So the test of our faith is how are we going to submit to God as his people in the light of these circumstances? And as we close, all I can say is this. May the Lord bestow the grace upon us all that we need to be able to do it in the circumstances in which he allows us to be. We can't judge other people. We can only obey God for ourselves. But we must obey his word as he's given it to us. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. And Lord, there's many difficult things in Scripture that we just can't make sense of and don't seem right to us. But Lord, again, teach us, guide us, lead us in truth that we might be obeying you and not coming to our own conclusions. Lord, even in the hardest circumstances, you've promised that you'll be with us, that you will work all things together for our good. So help our faith to grow to the point where we will trust you no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances are. And as you've given us these three examples in Scripture, Lord, may we submit to the authorities that you have put over us in each one of these scenarios so that your word can be brought forth in our lives, that our testimony might demonstrate that we truly believe what we see in your word and that you truly are our master. And through that testimony, people will be brought to you. That's the ultimate goal, that you will be glorified, that your kingdom will be built on this earth. And so, Lord, we ask for your help in doing this. Just go with us now. We thank you for this lesson today. Help us to continue to seek you in everything and give you the glory for all that's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Hand number 163.